All right, so let's turn uh, in the book of Acts to chapter 4. Uh, good to be together. I know it's a little chilly in here. Um, and trust me, I'm feeling it, short sleeve up here, but I uh, hope you're, uh, you're going to make it through. It'll keep you awake. Um, so Acts chapter 4, we're going through the book of Acts verse by verse. Uh, it's been such a good study uh, together to just see what God has for us each week in different parts of the first sections of the book of Acts. Before I dive into Acts 4, 32 to 37 uh, this morning, I just want to make a quick announcement we're going to be having 21 days of prayer uh, starting off at the beginning of the new year. So for the beginning of January, we're going to start the year right, uh, try to do this together as a church. And so we have found a, a basically a plan for 21 years, um, 21 years of prayer. Yeah, that's what we're going to do. Uh, 21 days of prayer. Uh, we have found a plan that we can kind of all follow along with. Um, it's short enough. Here's the thing. It's short enough each day that, that you can do it and you can start whatever your new yearly Bible reading plan is also, and you're not going to be having like a five-hour quiet time, okay? It's short, um, but, but it's something we can do together. And so you'll be getting, you know, if you sign up for this, if you join in with this, there'll be more information to come. But I just want to go ahead and give you a heads up. You can go ahead and find it um, on the YouVersion Bible app. You can find this specific one. Just look for that image. There are a lot of 21 day plans, but look for that one that looks just like that. And uh, that's the one we're going to be doing. And so we'll invite you to be part of it. And we'll give you more information as we as we go. But it's going to be a good way to start the new year uh, together. And actually this morning's sermon, you know, one of the points, the first point uh, this morning is that that a great church is filled with great unity. And so the focus of this 21 days of prayer is John 17 and unity. And so I'm excited. So uh, this morning... The title of the message for Acts 4, 32 to 37 is kind of a funny title. It's the megachurch God wants you to be part of, all right? The megachurch God wants you to be part of. And you say, why that title? Well, first of all, what, do I, what is a megachurch? Well, Hartford Institute for Religion and Research defines a mega church as any Protestant Christian church having 2,000 or more people in average weekend attendance. All right. So that's the definition of mega church according to those people. All right. Um, they also, that same like research institute reports that the median size church in the U.S. has, what do you think? It's 75 participants, okay? So that's, that's what's normal. Um, that's the median size. So um, here's where I'm going with this. As we see and have been seeing in the book of Acts, the church, the early church, is growing. It's, it's a living movement of the gospel. People are coming to faith in Christ. We saw on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, 2,000 people believed the gospel. We saw then that Peter and John, they heal a paralytic man at the gate, the beautiful gate in Acts 3, and then they go to Solomon's colonnade or portico or whatever it is, and, and they preach some more. And at that time, Luke writes, there are 5,000 now believers in Jerusalem. In a very short time, we've gone from 120 Christians in the upper room praying 
to thousands of Christians. So this is a movement of the gospel. So you might think my point would be to prove that God wants megachurches or that that is a noble goal. Not quite. I really have no opinion about that to share today, uh, except that it would be probably good to ask questions like, does our power come from our size or from the Holy Spirit? Or does our sense of success as an event, as a small group, as a church service, come from our size or from our faithfulness to God, no matter the size? So those would be good questions to reflect on, but I'm actually not even going to talk about the title that you think it's about. The reason for the title. This sermon's not an anti-big church sermon. Not at all. And certainly, we're not going to bash on big churches as some sort of small Fellowship Raleigh moment to justify a putrid self-focus or a timid church with a lack of excellence that repels people and stagnates growth. I'm not saying that's our church. (laughs) But I'm just saying we're not going to go bashing on anybody to justify mediocrity. But what I want to share with you is what I learned this week as I was studying this passage that the word mega, which means great, the Greek word mega is in these verses two times. Luke is writing sort of a summary passage of the church up to this point. Acts 4, 32 through 37 is a little summary passage. He's saying this is what Christianity was like. You're familiar perhaps with the more famous summary passage in Acts 2, 42 to 47, where it talks about the fellowship of believers day by day, all of that. There are several little summaries in Acts. Here's another one. And in this passage, Luke uses the word mega twice. As he's talking about what Christianity was like in the early church. Luke is not just a historian. He's recommending that church be like this. He's recommending the Christian faith to Theophilus, who he wrote Luke and Acts for. He's recommending and commending this. So let me read to you this and look for the word great in this passage as we read it, Acts 4, 32 to 37. Look for that word great. Just know that it's the word mega. And look also for, look for this. As we read this passage, look for this. Look how the grace of God impacts the generosity of God's people. Look for that. Acts 4, 32 through 37. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them 
and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, was also, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. And we bow before you in prayer right now. And God, we ask you to speak to our hearts today. We ask you to inspire us about what you long for the bride of Christ to be like. And Lord, may that not just be a church that we go to or an organization that we critique or think, do we want to be part of this or whatever? God, may we think of ourselves. May we think of us as the people of God. May we think of our part in that. Lord, help us to be the bride of Christ that you envision in Raleigh, North Carolina, in this day and time. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the grace of God and we pray that it would be upon us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So with this passage, you saw that phrase that said that the grace of God, I'm sorry, it said great grace was upon them. Great grace. And so with this passage, what I want to do is show you five evidences of great grace upon the church. That is what Luke reveals to us here in this passage. And so the first one, five evidences of great, or if you'd like, mega grace upon the church. Five evidences. The first one is great unity. Great unity. Okay? Verse 32, the first part of verse 32. It says this, do you see it? It says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Great unity. What is it that unifies them? Look at the verse closely. Look at it. It's that they're all believers. It's their one faith in their one Lord Jesus Christ that brings them together. Great unity. Remember this, brothers and sisters in Christ, that we are believers. We believe in Jesus Christ. That's what a Christian is. A Christian believes in the objective truth that God sent his one and only son, Jesus, to come on that first Christmas, to take on human flesh, that he might be counted and numbered among us to live a sinless, perfect life that none of us have lived, that he might be the spotless lamb of God that was slain for our sins. We are believers in this good story. We are believers that it's not just a story. We're believers in objective truth that God has revealed that in real time, in real history, God sent his son, that Jesus then died on the cross for our sins. That he was buried for three days, that he was risen from the grave. We're believers in this. Sometimes you've got to sort of shake yourself and be like, I'm a believer. And it's not 
faith in faith. It's not the faith meter okay? We're not talking about do you or don't you believe in Santa Claus, right? Like, do you believe in a little magic? Are you sort of a romantic person? Do you believe? How's your faith? No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the fact that when you're a Christian, you're a believer in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's the point of our unity, that we believe in Jesus Christ. And so that's the point that he makes here. The full number of those who believed were of, do you see it? One heart and soul. You can't be much more unified than that. Now, you know, we're going to study the whole book of Acts. And there are going to be situations that are going to come up in the book of Acts where it's going to be real obvious that the one heart and one soul, the perfect, blessed, blissful unity is challenged. In fact, read the New Testament. The reason there is a New Testament is all the letters that are written to churches that are struggling with issues, and a lot of times those issues have to do with unity. So this is the ideal. This is the summary. This is, hey, this is what the great looks like. The mega unity. One heart. The word is cardia. They were united in their heart. In one soul. They were united in their soul, their mindset, their thinking, their personhood. They're totally unified. I want to read to you a quote that always comes to mind for me when I think about the importance of unity and what it really should be like. Uh, in the church, A.W. Tozer, From Pursuit of God, probably my most favorite book other than the Bible, but it says, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Now that's a good quote. There's some truth there. It's helpful. It's not the Bible. I mean, I don't know if I like, I like 99% agree with I do think we're still supposed to strive for fellowship. I think we're supposed to care about unity. Um, you know, and we're supposed to be intentional. So this is not a cop-out. This is not a, hey, let's just all look to heaven and trust that that's going to just sort of unify somehow. That sometimes doesn't work, does it? But the point is that the believers, people who had come to faith in Christ, people who were filled with the Holy Spirit, People who are focused on Jesus are unified in one heart and soul. John 17, Jesus said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Five evidences of a great grace upon the church. Great unity. Notice we're not saying uniformity. 
And notice, and this is important, how the church is growing. People want in. People are like, man, Christianity, following Jesus seems awesome. Why? Because the focus is on unity, not uniformity. Judgmental demands for uniformity repels people and stunts growth. A great church is not like that. Mega great grace upon the church is a people with one heart and soul, a people who are believers. Unity. Second evidence of great grace upon the church. And that is also from verse 32, and it is a great selflessness. A great selflessness. Look at it, it says here, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. There's a lot here. Um, you know that everyone is very familiar with the word. In fact, it's usually one of the first 10 words that kids learn. Mine, right? Mine. And so the point here is not that people don't own things. That's not the point. Luke is not painting a picture of the early church where they all came, they brought the titles of their cars and their houses, and they just put it in a pot and said, let's just do communism, let's do it. Like, like no one owned anything, and you guys just make sure everyone has the exact same amount. Pass it out, even Stephen, we're all just going to do that. That's not what happened. There's nothing here against ownership of personal property. There's nothing here that's judgmental toward people who have great possessions or own things. There's nothing here about that. I used to think that was the case. I used to think, oh, the early church was so weird. Like, it was just like they were doing this thing where like they were all sharing. And I'm kind of kind of like, I admire the early church. Like, got to get back to the X2 church. But also like, not sure I want to go to the X2 church because like, I don't know if like that, I'd fit there. Like, I don't know if that seems normal. So here's the thing though. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him, so people had belongings, were their own. What he's talking about here is there was a lack of possessiveness. It's not that these people didn't own things, it's that their things didn't own them. It's a lack of possessiveness. It's, it's that they cared for one another. They were like Christ. They were selfless. There was a great selflessness when the Spirit filled the church, when the early church had just become the church. There was a great selflessness. That's what great grace upon the church looks like. This is such a Jesus thing. Philippians 2, look for this same mindset here. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, watch this, though he was in the form of God, he was God, he possessed divinity, he was fully God. He did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, 
You could translate that exploited as a thing to be leveraged. But he emptied himself, not of his divinity, but he emptied himself of his rights. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being formed or being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So listen, like, here's what we got to see here. Like, this is just what Jesus did. You know, and, and in some way, it should always be this way. There should be a sense that we're tracing our lives like tracing paper over top of the cross. That, that we have a great selflessness just like Jesus had toward us. And it is, in fact, his great selflessness toward us, which frees our fearful hearts that feel like the only way to make it is to not be selfless, but to be selfish. His selflessness toward us is what breaks those chains and enables and empowers us to be selfless. So evidences of great grace upon the church, great unity, great selflessness, and a great message, a great message. Verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So again, with mega power, the apostles were giving their testimony, and mega grace was upon them all. I love the fact that way that Luke writes this, he says they were giving their testimony. Each one of these 12 apostles, and it's really pointed out here that it was the apostles giving this testimony, but each one of these 12 apostles is giving their own testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, if you've been studying Acts with us, you know that in the passage just before this one, they were told it is illegal for you to teach in Jesus' name in Jerusalem. Yet with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. God blesses us with great grace when we share his message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, regardless of the consequences. We trust him with the results. They had a great message. They had a great testimony. They had a great boldness. Five evidences of great grace upon the church. Great unity, great selflessness, the great gospel message. Now number four, great generosity. Great generosity. All right. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. 
So this is not teaching us that everyone gave up everything they had. It's not teaching that. It's not teaching that all Christians, none of them owned property. They all went in together, bought a combine, and they all lived there and no one owned it. It's, it's like just not actually even saying that. And it's important to kind of shake yourself, kind of get that like myth out of our minds. Like that's not what was going on. But what is going on is they're saying that there was such a great generosity in the early church that there wasn't needy people. When there was a needy person, their needs were met. How? Because people who had great possessions were selling some, it doesn't say they sold everything they had, but they were selling some of their fields, some of their properties, and they were not giving the property or the field, they were giving the money that they got from the sale to the church in Jerusalem, which was led by the apostles, which is why it says that they laid it at the apostles' feet. That's just sort of a phrase, meaning they said, here, we're going to give, we're going to trust leadership to distribute this to the greatest gospel need. That's what was going on. So, what a picture. Great generosity. I mean, this is happening. Evidences of great grace upon the church. Just think about how these early Christians were impacted right away by the grace of God such that they became extremely generous. It's, this is not a tip. This is like somebody was like, you know what? I'm going to like go sell a field. I'm going to like really get into this. Like I'm into it. I'm doing it. I'm working on it. I'm trying really hard to be generous. Effort. Sometimes, you know, people say like, hey, you know, it'd be, you could do online giving. Automatic faithfulness. It just set it up, a recurring gift. Don't ever think about it again. Hey, I'm not, I, I gotta be careful. I can't criticize that too much. I'll get in trouble. But, but sometimes we overpromise with that. You know, it, maybe we shouldn't be looking for the, make it totally easy for me to give. Like, can you just make it so easy? Like, people were like, going out and finding like Jerusalem's Craigslist and like selling fields and like working it and like doing everything like just so that they could like be generous. Why? What, what, what was motivating them? Luke says great grace was upon them. There's a famous novel by Victor Hugo called Les Mis written in 1862. It became a musical. It became a movie. Um, the main theme of this novel is grace. The main character is this guy named Jean Valjean, and he was in prison for a long time, and he was released from prison, from jail, and he was welcomed generously by a priest into his home. And the priest loves on him. The priest shows great hospitality toward him. He lets him eat amazing meals on fine china with nice silverware. And he just shows so much grace to Jean Valjean. You know what Jean Valjean does in return? He leaves in the middle of the night 
and steals all that expensive silverware and plates and he leaves that priest. And then he gets arrested. And then the police bring him back to the priest. And they say, we found this guy. Is this your valuable things that we found him with? You know what the priest says? He says, oh yeah, those are my things, but I gave those things to him. Those are his. I sent him on his way. He shows great grace. And then there's a private interaction between the priest and Jean Valjean, and Jean Valjean is floored. He can't believe that he has been shown so much undeserving grace, and the priest challenges him to use his opportunity for good. This experience that Jean Valjean had of great grace, it transformed him. It inspired him. He became a new man, a man of faith, a man of compassion, a man of generosity. And you got to just see the movie or watch the musical or whatever. But here's the point. Every follower of Christ has been shown great grace, generous grace, this way through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Luke is writing the book of Acts and he's using the example of this great generosity to challenge you and me to use the opportunity for good. 2 Corinthians 8-9 For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that by His poverty we might become rich. Evidences of great grace upon the church, great unity, great selflessness, great message, great generosity. And now last, great people. Great people. Here we see that Luke chooses to highlight a who will become a main character in the book of Acts, and it's a man named Barnabas. So look with me at verse 36 through 37. Thus Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So this person, Barnabas, it says that his name was Joseph. That was his Jewish name. His Aramaic, I guess we're led to believe from this text that his Aramaic nickname was Barnabas. So the apostles called him Barnabas. Luke, again, he wrote uh, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts for this guy named Theophilus, and he probably didn't speak Aramaic. And so several times in the book of Acts, Luke will define something for him. So when he says they called him Barnabas, then in parentheses, which means son of encouragement. You can hear it though. Bar means son. And novice means preacher or exhorter. So son of encouragement. So they called him that. It's not saying that was his real name. It's saying this is what they called him. This is what his nickname was. This is what probably his spiritual gift was. He was 
an encourager. And he was so using his gifts from God to bless the local church that he became nicknamed after his gift. It's a great example. The apostles called him Barnabas because he was always encouraging. He was a Levite. That, that in the first century, that means that he was higher class. He was a we see here that he was a landowner. He, he, he was a little bit upper class. He was a native of Cyprus. I'll show you a map. You can see Cyprus is an island. It's near Jerusalem, not far from there. It's the third largest and most populated island in the Mediterranean Sea. That's where Barnabas was from. Barnabas is mentioned 28 times in the New Testament after this, but this is the first time. And so we're being introduced to an important character. We see that he's a teacher, that he's a missionary, that he is an advocate for Paul. They weren't sure if they could trust Paul. Barnabas brings Paul to the Jerusalem leadership, to the apostles, and says, guys, I'm vouching for him. You can trust Paul. Barnabas had a disagreement with Paul because he was such an encourager and he was encouraging his cousin, John Mark. And Paul was like, we got to leave him. He's not helping us. And Barnabas is like, sorry, I just, I'm too much of an encourager, Paul. I just can't. So they disagreed. Barnabas is a great example. He's not perfect. He was caught up in Antioch with Peter and the Jews from Jerusalem who segregated the church, Jews and Gentiles, in their mealtimes. He's not perfect, but he's an imperfect, astounding example. First to Theophilus. And I keep saying that name, but just remember in Luke 1, verse 1 through 4, Luke and Acts are dedicated to Theophilus. And so just remember, Luke is writing the Gospel of Luke and Acts to a sort of wealthy patron and I think he's saying, hey, oh, Theophilus, you're going to like this guy. He's, he's a wealthy guy that was super generous. It's a great example for you, Theophilus. It's a great example for Theophilus. It's a great example for us. Great example for us. There's so much that Barnabas does here. Think about it. Don't just think about that he gave a, a donation. He didn't just text to give here, okay? He did a lot here. He showed great trust in the leadership. That's exemplary. He sold a field, he laid it at the leadership's feet. He showed great trust. He was a great encourager. That's such an important example for us, to be one who encourages people. He shows a great example of using his gifts such that leadership would know his gift such that they would have a nickname for him based off his gift. So his example is that he served in the church. He didn't just give, he served in the church in such a way that his gift was so prominent it became a nickname. So he's an example of service. He's an example of generous giving. He's an example of trusting leadership. He's an example in so many ways. And in great churches, there are lots of great spirit-filled followers of Jesus Christ who are what we'll call great people, who are great examples. 
that we should follow as they follow Christ. Barnabas is one of those. So five evidences of great grace upon the church, great unity, great selflessness, a great message, great generosity, and great people. So what is the megachurch God wants you to be part of? Regardless of attendance size, large or small, the church God wants every one of His children to be part of is the church where it can truly be said that church has great grace upon it. Manifest through great unity, selflessness, generosity, people, and the greatest message of all, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this morning as we close, I want you to pray for your church to be great. I want you to pray and I want you to consider your part in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. How has God called you to be a Barnabas? So let me close in prayer as the worship team comes back up and we're going to continue worshiping the Lord. We're going to sing a Christmas song together and getting ready for Christmas Eve service. And so let's pray.